Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover Blind Willie, found in Hearts in Atlantis. Let's start the show! It's 1983, and Vietnam veteran Bill Sherman appears to live a comfortable life in suburban Connecticut. But as we observe him through his day, he actually appears to lead a double and even triple life, begging on a midtown Manhattan street corner as he pretends to be blind. The reason for this seems to be his form of penance for his involvement in a beating of a young girl, Carol Gerber, whose life he has followed by keeping news clippings of her protests of the war that have become more and more radical and seem to have led to her death. The story ends as it begins, with Bill in bed with his wife, who seems to know how he makes money. Greetings, constant listeners. Want to support the show? Check out our Patreon page to learn how you can access exclusive content. We've set up three patron levels, Apprentice, Gunslinger, and Cotet. Each level provides rewards as a thank you from us to you. Find out more information at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Thanks again for being a loyal listener. Not my best recap of stories, Jay, but I think it hits some of the major points. There's actually a lot more happening in this story than what I said, but at the same time, there's really not a lot that happens in this story. It's just one day in Bill Sherman's life, and we see what's going on, but even the little bit of conflict that is introduced, Bill is worried that he's going to be found out by the policeman that he pays a bribe to so that he can stay on the street corner. Mm -hmm. That conflict is not resolved. It's just sort of a thought in Bill's head towards the end of the story, like, oh yeah, I think I might have an idea on how to deal with it, but it's not fully spelled out. But really just sort of a day in the life of this guy. Yeah. I think that was actually a great recap. Considering what the the story was all about, I could easily see that on a dust cover or the back of a DVD box. So don't sell yourself so short. Well, I'm not sure if this is uh, as good of a story to be made into a movie anytime anytime soon, uh, Jay. Somebody decided to make Maximum Overdrive. I can't believe that they wouldn't adapt this. Of course, the person who made that decision was Stephen King, and he was high on cocaine at the time, so. Mm. I'm certain whatever studio executive greenlit it was also high on cocaine at the time. In fact, they might have had the same dealer. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, unlike the other stories in this book, this one had been previously published. Yeah. It was published in Antaeus, an important literary journal which never reached more than about 10,000 readers or subscribers. But in its approximately 25 years that it ran, it published a wide variety of authors and poets. In fact, it was founded by Paul Bowles, who um, is a famous writer in his own right. He gave sort of the seed money to get this up and running. And Blind Willie was actually published in the final issue of this journal, which was in 1994. So King killed the 
Antaeus. I think it was the other way around that they knew that the journal was coming to an end. Um, in fact, the editor said something along the lines of, I want to get out before I get too old, too blind, too tired and lose my hair. So I'm, I'm going to get out at this point and, and stop publishing it. And in that last issue, he really gathered up a lot of well-known authors for the final issue. In, in addition to King, two of my favorite authors of all time, Paul Auster and Don DeLillo, I actually might like them better than King, if you can believe that, for a different type of writing, but two of my favorite writers. Uh, Margaret Atwood appeared in the last issue, Richard mm -hmm. Ford, Nadine Gordimer, Joyce Carol Oates, Jane Smiley, Tobias Wolf. Those are just some of the names that I recognize just by going through the table of contents. So uh, they did gather up some pretty big names for that final issue, uh, including King. And King's entry was Blind Willie. However, and Jay, you might be interested in this, and hopefully our listeners are too, it is quite different from the story that is in Hearts in Atlantis. Yeah. When I was reading Blind Willie for this podcast, I knew that it had been published before it appeared in Hearts in Atlantis, but I didn't know what the, the text was in that original publication. So I started asking myself along the way, how many details did King change to adapt this for Hearts in Atlantis? Was it very little? Did he have this idea of the Carol Gerber figure in Blind Willie's life? Was she the reason for his penance and acts of contrition? Those kinds of things were kind of top of mind for me. And when you shared some of the details of the original version of Blind Willie, it became quickly apparent that none of the Hearts in Atlantis stuff is in it, basically, right? And therefore, King added all of that stuff in just so that it would better integrate within the larger group of stories. And I think it's to our benefit and to the story's benefit. I think giving Willie a more concrete reason to do some of the things he does and act the way that he does and or the choices he makes in his life beyond like attaching those things to Carol, attaching those things to his his time in Vietnam in a very specific way and connecting it to some of the other people and who he met in Vietnam, including Sully John. I think it makes Willie a more meaningful character than he otherwise would have been. Yeah. So I was able to get the original journal from my wife who works at a research library and and they had it. So we snuck that out of the library so I could take a look at it. Whoa. The library police are going to come for you. <laughs> Uh-oh. I'm in trouble. Again, I didn't do a exact line-by-line -line re read-through, but I did put them page to page to see the difference. And the one in the jur literary journal is much shorter. And as you said, the big holistic changes are the story itself is the same. It's framed the same way. And there's not much that's cut. What is instead is added is all the stuff for Hearts in Atlantis. So Carol the beating, the penance, when he goes into the the second office and he's writing all the, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, peace, none of that's there. Um, so it's a lot of additions. In addition, there are some minor changes that are of interest. One is that the character's name is Bill Teal in Blind Willie versus Bill Sherman in the Hearts in Atlantis version. Mm -hmm. The timing's different. So in Hearts in Atlantis, the story takes place in 1983, and in the original story, it takes place in the early 1990s. Hmm. 
So there's uh, some some changes there. There are some changes in some of the brand names that are used, the stores that are used. Trump Towers mentioned as a location where Blind Willie passes by on his way to the the street corner. Some really weird changes are included there, like the time stamps for the different sections of the story. Sometimes they're off by five minutes from one story to the other. And it's those little changes that just sort of make me wonder, like, what was King thinking? Some you can sort of explain away, right? Like, oh, maybe because it takes place in the 90s instead of the 80s, some of the store names would change or some of the brand names would change. And so he wants to be mm-hmm. not anachronistic in, in that way. There's a, a fairly significant change in that Willie is in the Marine Corps in the first version of the story and is in the Army in the second version of the story. Hmm. And those types of changes, I think we could explore a little bit of what the reason might be for that. So because there's so much more of the Vietnam piece in the later version, I wonder if King had done some research to really make sure that the places and the times made sense and that when he has the conversation with the other soldier who, you know, talks about the different battles in the war, he wanted to make them so that it would be less likely that they knew each other in the Marines. They might be more likely to know real acquaintances, whereas the army's bigger. So maybe that might not happen. And the age thing obviously is to make it fit with hearts in Atlantis, but some interesting stuff there that somebody could maybe make up a little paper out of. Yeah. One of the things that crossed my mind is that I think the Marines were in Vietnam long before anybody from the army was there and they were there for longer, but there are generally far fewer Marines than people in the army. So the chances of one Marine meeting another Marine and he, that other Marine being from his hometown in Connecticut and all that stuff, I think drops, drops to the point of being completely unbelievable. But if you say, well, okay, there are these two guys who knew each other when they were kids and they're both in the army, which is a much larger organization, and that it'd be likely that they'd be serving at the exact same time and possibly sent to the same locations, then it becomes a bit more likely that they might actually run into each other. It still seems unlikely enough to feel special and worth noting, but it doesn't seem like that couldn't possibly happen. Yeah. That might be King's main reason, just a a little bit of believability to a very unlikely happenstance. Yeah. All of this makes me realize how important revision is for a writer. Mm. A lot of times people think, hey, you just write something and then publish it and you're out the door and you start at the beginning and you end with the end and and that's how it goes. And here's a story that got published in a journal and, you know, is a good 30, 40 pages long. And King comes back to it four or five years later. And while he doesn't completely revise the story, he adds another, you know, third to it, maybe. So that's now 60 pages long. And there's significant changes that make a difference in how you read the story. My friend Fred did a similar read through of Stephen King's The Stand. I think I might have mentioned it on this podcast before, where he took the original version and placed it side by side with the the, un, un, the author's version. cut or the uncut version that had 200 extra pages and pointed out the differences where sometimes he did things as simple as change Coke to Pepsi and other times he added whole chapters. And to see how the how a writer makes those changes and starting to determine why he makes those changes can be of interest. And I think 
probably for us, again, this is a short story and not one of King's major works. And I don't even think it's one of the major stories in this collection of book, you know, in Hearts and Atlantis. But the main change that I think is important is all of the addition of the Carol stuff. Mm-hmm. Not only the end where we get a whole history of Carol, and we'll talk a little bit about that later, but the beginning part when we understand that the reason that Bill becomes Blind Willie, that he's going out and begging, is that he thinks that this is some sort of penance that he has to do. Not only for what he did in Vietnam, and maybe that's the least likely thing, but more for what he did to Carol back when she was. 11 and he was 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just one more note on the the revisions and the the work of an author. King did more than just add 30 pages of story. He did a ton of research to make sure that the additions and changes he made still made sense, still added up. He figured out where all of these battles took place in Vietnam. He figured out where helicopter crashes went down and where certain ambushes happened so that when Bill and Sully John had that event where he rescues him from you know his wound and gets him onto the the helicopter to be evacuated that that was like a real place at a real time and so that can also connect correctly to the guy who gives him the hundred dollars yep on the street corner so all of those things needed to add up so he couldn't just freely make those things up out of of thin air without it just all falling apart. So there's a lot more to it than just saying, I'm just going to write a little more story, right? There's, you know, for this short story that he wrote once and then came back to many years later and then revised so that it fit in with this, this larger Hearts in Atlantis narrative, when he realized I need to change this, this character from a Marine to an army soldier. Now I need to, that, that had a ripple effect. So now I need to change where he was. And also I changed the, the years he was in Vietnam. So I need to figure out that. And so next thing you know, he's like, man, I probably ended up spending more time researching the revisions than I did writing the original story. Right. But at the end of the day, I'm glad that he did because this is not my favorite story of the Hearts in Atlantis book. It's a pretty interesting and and fun read and i think it's it's well written and i think the fact that it lived on the shelf a li- for a little while before king came back to it and brought it in line with these other stories i think it benefits from that yeah it had some time to breathe and then he was able to fortify it with the additions what are we supposed to take away from the story jay because bill is going to a lot of work to basically be somebody who just collects money in a in a suitcase and brings it home at the end of the day. Yep. He puts on a suit. He goes to one office. He sneaks into a second office. He leaves that office, goes into a public restroom, and changes into a yet a, another person. Goes and stands at parade rest for eight hours a day on a street corner in Manhattan, where he seems to potentially suffer from a psychosomatic blindness of some sort. Yeah. And then comes back home and leads a regular suburban life with his wife where he has dinner parties and meets with other couples and his wife seems to know what he's doing. But like, it seems like an awful lot of work for 
maybe not the best way to make yourself some money if you're especially if you're renting two offices in midtown manhattan which i would imagine take a big chunk of that rent out i mean this is all about his guilt this is all about making up for the terrible things that he did earlier in his life you know, we're kind of titled this section of of our conversation only the penitent man shall pass mostly because i'm a fan of indiana jones and the last crusade it still doesn't really fully explain a lot of the actions and, and choices that Willie makes on a daily basis. He is doing all of this subterfuge because he knows what he's doing is ultimately an act. And that's being generous. He's lying to the people who give him money. Mm -hmm. He's not the person he's portraying himself as, not in appearance, not in handicap. He's not a father which he claims to be, all of these things are not true. And furthermore, his secondary persona is not true. Right. He, he changes it before he even gets to that persona. He changes from the persona he is with his wife into a secondary one so that he can leave the building under a, a separate disguise. Right. The fact that he goes to these lengths is evidence, I think, that he knows at some level what he's doing isn't right. Which is why when Officer Wheelock is always, you know, giving him a hard time, he's like, I know what you're doing is fake. So we understand as the reader, yeah, Wheelock's onto something here. There's a moment in the, like the first half of the story, I found myself completely sympathizing with Willie. I'm like, why won't this cop leave him alone? <laughs> you know, he's making up for something terrible that he did. This is his penance. He is the penitent man, right? But by the end of the story, I'm not so sure. I found myself asking the question, like, is Willie penitent or is he a madman? And I, I know we can kind of just say he went to war in Vietnam and he has PTSD and he experienced some really, really awful stuff when he was at war. And he clearly isn't getting help for that. At the time, a lot of war vets did not get any help right. for the, this type of thing. So it's not so unusual that he isn't. But we know that he's not. He's not, he's not talking to anybody. He's not seeing a therapist. He's not on any medication. And in fact, he's, all of the stuff that he's doing, either directly or, or indirectly or just through like self-denial, even his wife is sort of supporting this. Yeah. And she knows somewhat enough to know, like, he's not really going to work every day. Right. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, I'll allow Willie a lot because of that. But at the end, when he decides, well, I'm going to invent another personality, another version of Willie, so that I can, quote unquote, take care of Officer Wheelock and not feel guilty about it. <laughs> Oh, whoa. Like this whole thing. Yeah. It's, it's like a M. Night Shyamalan twist ending here. Like, oh, wait, he's not a penitent man. No. He's a, a person who has some sickness. And part of it is just being, you know, willing to stand on a street corner all day, every day and pretend to be blind. But now it's like, is he a cop killer? You know, like, like what the heck's going on here? It's a series of Russian dolls. And when you get to the one inside, it's an assassin of some sort. We can argue about his penance, but even if you think about that, it doesn't make sense. What is he trying to 
to atone for. And it seems odd that the thing in his life that he's trying to atone for, which is horrible, is the beating of Carol Gerber. Yeah. Which happened way before he was in Vietnam. And he sees that as the worst thing that he has done and something that can't be forgiven for, even though it sounds like he may have done worse things when he was in Vietnam and is planning on potentially doing a far worse thing with his this last persona. Right. So I'm with you where I don't see that his penance is put in the right place. He, he says at one point that the most important thing that he learned is that only penance replaces confession and only penance defines identity. And he obviously has this understanding of what the church would think is the right thing to do if you think you've done something wrong. And he's taken it to the extreme and saying, you know what? I can say a lot of things in confession, but I can't talk about this. And so I will stand and collect money and lose my sight for hours at a time in hopes of making it up to Carol. And in addition, I will write in my notebooks, Mm -hmm. which is not the sign of a normal person to continue to write the same thing over and over and over again. Uh, It has that feeling of all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy type of thing from The Shining. Mm -hmm. I don't really know what to make of his twisting of his apparent Catholic faith. We know that he went to Catholic school as a kid. We know that he was an altar boy in the whole nine yards. Why won't he accept the workings of the Catholic confessional and, you know, embrace his faith and go in, confess his sins, be forgiven, be told that he needs to write, I am heartily sorry, five million times and stand on a street corner, but be told that by a priest so that he knows that when he finishes this, this penance, that he is absolved. Right. He is purposely choosing to not embrace a part of his faith. And that's fine. You know, there are lots of Catholics who aren't particularly religious or don't really follow the teachings of of their church, but it seems to be part of what makes him who he is. And at the same time, he's denying himself that avenue of absolution. And it's kind of one of those things where, you know, like in certain stories, if somebody had just told, if one character had just told another character something, like the whole plot would would dissolve. It's sort of like that here. You know, if he had just confessed to a priest at the beginning of the story or right after he got back from Vietnam, he wouldn't feel guilty anymore and he'd be done with this and he would find some other way to live his life and earn money and you know, and it wouldn't involve pretending to be three different people every day and having to bribe cops and and all that. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's uh strange that he makes these choices. I think that touching on the damage that was done to him through his experiences in the war as a soldier clearly the this weighs on him and and this is could be in large part if not the entirety of the reason that he chooses to do this even though he's decided to fixate on carol i suspect that maybe it's not carol it maybe it's it's the war itself that has never left him yeah i think so especially knowing what carol does and we obviously got a hint of it in the last story that Carol becomes a protester for the, against the war and drops out of school and has been arrested a number of times and goes into it. We get a giant, giant info dump at the end of this story, mm-hmm. a sort of ungainly way of putting it where he he's just happens to have a notebook where he's been collecting stories about 
Carol Gerber all this time, and he has all these articles about her different arrests and her different uh, run-ins with the law. And in fact, this last the last story about how she was involved with a very radical group that ends up setting off an explosive in a uh, a lab that ends up killing some people. And maybe that is a good transition into our dark tower thinnies. In this info dump, we note that Carol is in cahoots with a Raymond Fiegler uh, when she plants the bomb. And Raymond Fiegler's initials are RF. I wonder what that means. Good old RF. I am quite certain that this is another nickname or pseudonym for Randall Flagg. This is our old buddy Walter here. He's bewitching you know, Vietnam War protest testers and radicalizing them in ways that they may not have they have done and to get them to do things that they may not have otherwise done because it's just it's it's just more anarchy, right? It, it's it also made me wonder like we get information about how Carol called in a bomb threat because she said, wait, the, you know, the bomb didn't go off when it was supposed to go off. She kept calling the, the lab and saying, there's a bomb. Don't let anybody in there. Evacuate the building. Then she kept calling and saying, this is where the bomb is. It's hidden in this exact spot and they couldn't find it. And so I'm like, you know, if I called in a bomb threat and I told you exactly where the bomb was hidden and you still couldn't find it, either the bomb isn't there because it's, it's fake or Maybe somebody like Randall Flagg is using magic to hide the bomb. Yep. So this story doesn't have any magic in it the way that Low Men and Yellow Coats did. Low Men and Yellow Coats certainly had a lot of supernatural stuff in it. Ted has his, his mental powers. The Low Men have their mental powers. The car is alive, all that stuff. There's direct dark tower, crossing worlds, etc. Here, it's just a story about of the war veteran and his guilt. Yep. But suddenly, in a really, really subtle way, maybe King is telling us there is still magic. There is still magic in this story because this is loosely connected to the Dark Tower. I'd say anytime Randall flags around, so is magic. Agreed. So that was sort of the most obvious Dark Tower thingy and really the only one that I noted, but you made a couple other connections, Jay. It's not directly Dark Tower-ish or, or, or specifically a Dark Tower connection, but I think that all of Willie's various identities is kind of a parallel to Susanna. Susanna has a number of identities and, like Willie, manifests additional ones yep. when circumstances require or when things happen to her. So I did see some parallels there. Yeah, absolutely. Another one was uh, on Willie's commute to New York from Connecticut. He's looking through the window at the approaching city and thinks that it looks like a gargantuan ruin. Mm. Kind of made me think of Lud. And since Lud is supposedly like a future version of Manhattan that has then fallen to ruin, I would imagine that if you're looking at New York City in the 80s through a dirty train window and it and it appears to be a gargantuan ruin 
that might be kind of like sliding the old uh, dark tower filter over the lens of the camera there. <laughs> and it's like, oh, yeah, that's that's LUD right there. And one final thingy that I thought of was uh, Willie uses fake tan makeup to make himself something people won't look at too long. It hurts if they do. Uh-huh. He's intentionally using very, very subtle visual tricks to make it so that people don't notice him. Yeah. What he's done effectively is he's made himself into a low man. This is exactly how the low men operate. This is how they exist and pass through the world unnoticed by having an appearance that people don't want to look at too long and it hurts if they do. Yeah. He doesn't know about the low men. He doesn't have any knowledge of the Kantoi and he isn't one himself, but he's using the same psychological manipulation on people by modifying his appearance to a certain thing that people just don't want to see. It's easier to just not acknowledge it, let your eye skate past it so they don't see him. And that's to his benefit, and that's exactly why he does it. He's low man Willie. <laughs> and this isn't necessarily a Dark Tower thingy, but more of another Hearts and Atlantis con- connection. There's another instance of one character carrying another. So we've had it in yeah. the stories up to Blind Willie, and now here we have it this time where in Vietnam, Bill is carrying Sully John. Mm-hmm. Just like in Low Men, where Bobby Garfield carries Carol, and then later on in Hearts in Atlantis, Skip carries Stokely Jones. Now we have Bill carrying Sully John. And I would just like to point out that this is the first time I noticed, right here as we're talking, that Stokely Jones and Sully John have similar initials. Hmm. Don't know if there's a connection there, but if I thought about it for more than the 10 seconds I just did, I perhaps could make some. <laughs> well, isn't it reversed, though? It's John Sullivan, and they just call him Sully John. Yeah, but they always refer to him as Sully John, SJ, just like uh, Stokely Jones's SJ. And just one more detail on the carrying thing. It is expressed yet again that the person doing the carrying shouldn't be able to carry the person they are carrying as easily as they do. In fact, it should be nearly impossible. In this instance, SJ is a bigger, heavier person than Willie is. And he's also terribly wounded, gushing blood and screaming and everything like that. And they're getting shot at. So in this moment, you know, Willie picks up SJ throws him over his shoulder and runs to safety, gets on a helicopter and off they go. And it is just like in the other instances. It's somebody who does a, a Herculean thing that is against the odds and saves somebody, helps somebody. Yep. All right. Well, you wouldn't think for a story that's not really happy-go-lively that there would be any fun stuff, but there is some things that we noticed, Jay, that we would characterize as fun stuff. I'll kick us off here. And I was reading through this, and I read the line about how when Willie was changing into his like soldier boots that weren't quite military issue, he said that they were you know shined up and super long lasting. In fact, they would probably last until the trump of judgment. Mm. The first time I read that sentence, I had to do a double take because I read it as last until the Trump administration. And I like screamed in my head, like Homer Simpson, like, ah, like what? Like, and and how did King know that there was going to be a Trump administration when he wrote the story? 
And then I realized, no, that's not what the sentence says. It's the trump of judgment, which makes more sense. Yeah. And, and just to go back, I mentioned it a little bit earlier, but in the, he changed it for the Hearts and Atlantis story, but in King's original version of this story, he talks about how as Willie's walking around the city, he sees the Trump Tower and it's, of course, Christmas time. And he notes all the the gaudy decorations that are all over t- Trump Tower, hmm. which I also thought was amusing in light of everything that's happened since then. Yeah. And the fact that he removed the Trump Tower reference in the revision means that I can't be pedantic and say there's no reason why Willie would have ever passed the Trump Tower on his way to St. Patrick's Cathedral. Because if he were coming from Grand Central, which he does on his commute from Connecticut, he would never pass Trump Tower. He would get to St. Patrick's before he gets to Trump. But Yep, no reason to say that at all. You can edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, so touching on uh, the how Willie made himself into a low man to for his disguise, I also kind of thought about it as he clearly went to the Clark Kent School of Disguises. His disguise is so simple, but it's completely effective. And he tests it every day. Every time he goes from Bill Shearman to the intermediary identity, he basically just changes his clothes and combs his hair a different way. And he's a different guy. And he sees the same people in the building and they never recognize him. They never call him on it. And I wonder if part of that is not only again, with the Clark Kent piece, it's not just the look, but it's the attitude. Yeah. So Clark Kent sort of carries himself as this clumsy, shy, unsure person. And so he's very unlike Superman in much the same way as Bill changes. He goes from a friendly giving money to the to the guy who's scamming quarters at, outside the building, very friendly with the people who are in the elevator and asking about the kids and the family. Mm-hmm. And then he becomes sort of a over-the-top alpha male asshole, right? Like, look at you. What are you doing? Hey, come on. Let's go get some girls. And I'm not giving this fucker any money. Mm-hmm. You know, that sort of thing. And that attitude, I think, goes a long way in, in being different. And the, the original Bill is somebody who, on the train, just ignores everybody. Yep. Just sort of the standoffish. Anyone tries to make conversation with them. That's it. He's going to a different train car and he's going to make sure he's not interacting with anyone. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that that's part of the disguise is his behavior. It's like all he does is like, does he have the cowlick hanging down over his forehead or not? You know, and then it's like, <laughs> is that Superman or a mild mannered reporter? I can't tell. King says in Bill's voice, what looks fake isn't always fake. Sometimes the issues are a little more complicated than they appear at first. I think that gets to not only his disguise, his personas, but even sort of the war, the protests, all of this, right? Yeah. The issues are a little bit more complicated than they appear at first, and there's multitudes and facets to all of this stuff. I really like the line that touched on the gargantuan ruin or where that came from, but the whole line is, outside the dirty window, the grime on the glass makes the city look like some filthy gargantuan ruin. Dead Atlantis, maybe just heaved back to the surface to glare at the gray sky. Mm. I love that. I mean, so that's packed with so much imagery and and that the the city has heaved its way back to the surface and that it is glaring at the gray sky. Like it's not just returned, 
even a, a lesser version of itself. It's a gargantuan ruin, and it's been heaved, and it's glaring. Like, it's just, it's back and it's pissed off. And I also thought it was interesting that we get a reference to Atlantis here, the only one in this story. And of course, you know, the, we've got the title of the book, but as far as we know, Willie Shearman was never part of the Atlantis crowd, if you will. Right. He was never someone who's going to embrace the summer of love. And he was a soldier. He wasn't a war protester. The reference to Atlantis here means that either Willie is somewhat aware of that, despite not really being part of that, or it's just King drawing connections. Either way, I like it. Yeah. I noticed on my sort of second read through of the story, the dehumanizing way that Bill slash Willie looks at the rest of the people around him. Mm. It took me a while to pick it up because it's sort of spread all over the place and it's subtle. But at one point he says that the citizenry is sleek gerbils who will be running full tilt on their exercise wheels by noon. So another way of saying the rat race, right? Yeah. Like all these people in the city are just doing their thing. And then later he says that the people around town are like nest of moles turned up by a farmer's harrow. And they make a point of saying as he moves from one office to the other through the crawl space that there's decon, rat poison there, mm -hmm. to keep it clean and, and away. And there's yet another point where he talks about mice and rats. So there's at least four instances where this idea of cleansing mice and rats, getting rid of mat rats, or, or just naming people after rodents comes up. And I wonder if that's why when we get to the end of the story, it's much easier and again, this could be part of his PTSD and coming from war where part of being a soldier is to dehumanize the enemy, right? Like that's mm -hmm. the only way you can get through killing people is to not think of them as actual people. And I wonder if that's what is making it easy for Bill to make that or Willie to make that last transformation into somebody who's going to take care of Officer Wheelock. Because if you're not thinking of somebody as a, as a full human being. It might make it a little easier. And even the people who he knows in his personal life, the, all the various people he interacts with regularly in the building where he has his two fake offices, he talks to them like, hey, I'm your friend. I'm your office neighbor. But he's thinking, you're a waste of my time Yep, at best. And when we kind of get that post-coital conversation between Bill and his wife after they've had dinner with their friends at the house he's very judgmental about the friends they had over like i don't like that one yep. guy and the other one's like boring you know so yeah like he has nothing good to say really about anybody except his wife yeah she's like the only person that he thinks about we know his true feelings that he seems to like and mm -hmm. maybe i guess carol too but there's also that's very much mixed up with all of his guilt it's hard to say how he feels about Carol. I don't know if he ever really liked Carol much, but I just know he feels really bad about what he did to her. Yet another story in which we get more and more about Carol, but not told from Carol's eyes. But now we got the first one through Bobby's eyes. We get the second story through Pete Riley's eyes. And we get this third one. Not only is it from Bill's perspective, but it's then filtered through newspaper articles. Yeah. We still haven't heard Carol tell her story, and I wonder if we'll get it before the end of this book. And Carol isn't even technically in this story. No. She's not truly a character, at least in the other two. She was a character. Like She had lines, 
<laughs> she was present and visible on the screen. So I got two last uh, just lines I like. Bill says, 8 a.m. is the hour which even people who don't drink look hungover. Yeah. I, I never would have thought that at 8 a.m. I would have thought most people would be put together at that point, but maybe that's because I'm an early riser. I don't know. Sounds about right. And then finally, we're told that Bill could afford better, but you don't always have a right to what you can afford. Hmm. I just thought it was a, a neat little thought there. Yeah. It's an interesting philosophy. It goes into or expands upon his like a personal denial of things. Like he doesn't want to have the best because if he did, it's like he's spoiling himself. Although he does, in one of his personas at least, have like a very nice suitcase and a nice suit and a nice tie. But isn't that where that line is from? It's like it's like not top of the line. It's one notch down. Yep. It's kind of his strange form of asceticism, right? Another part of his penance. Yeah. It's very interesting. All right. Well, overall, like we said earlier, not our favorite story necessarily in this book, but still an interesting one. Um, it's got stiff competition. I mean- Those first two stories are pretty good. Exactly. All right. Well, that's going to be all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. And our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we cover Why We're in Vietnam, found in Hearts of Atlantis. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. Information. You are number six. I am number two. Who does number two work for? Hey, buddy, how about a courtesy flush over there? <laughs>